joining us today. It's great to be here. Nice to see you. It's been yeah, a couple like, of long COVID years <laughs> since yes, I last saw you. Yes, yes, it has. So we're so excited to have you here today and excited to hear what all you have to say. I know you have a lot of great things to share with us and our listeners today. So um, why don't you start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, kind of explaining to us what you do. Sure. Um, I'm Val McBee and um, originally from the Midwest, been in Georgia most of the last gosh, 23 years. Um, so it's been, you know, it's home now, even though I'll never quite be a Southerner. <laughs> so it goes. The Chicago, you can't remove the Chicago girl from me completely. But um, I am professionally, I'm a clinical social worker um, and a therapist. And I think that's most of what we're going to talk about today. Um, I specifically do a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, which is a mouthful, but um, it's a therapy that is was designed for people with a pretty particular profile, but over the 40 years it's been used, um, research shows that it works for a lot of things, but the kind of hallmark would be people who struggle with really overwhelming patterns of emotions um, and kind of all the behaviors that come along with that. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do. Um, I also teach some and just as, as of the last year have been writing some. So, yeah, you have, you have, you have a pretty uh, full plate and a pretty busy woman. <laughs> I, I do, but I keep it to a part-time schedule because my priority is my, my kids and my family. So awesome. um, I managed to pack a lot into a you know, short number of hours. <laughs> So uh, how long have you been a therapist? Tell us, kind of take us back and tell us what kind of made you decide to be a therapist and when did all that come about? Yeah, um, well, the story goes, and years later, I had to double check with my mom to make sure I wasn't making it up. But the story goes that when I was in second grade, my best friend's parents were um, looking at getting a divorce. They didn't end up divorcing at that time, but, but we would sit on the back porch and talk and she was just really, she was worried, you know, she's the way that a seven or eight year old can be. She yeah. was just worried about what was going on at home. And she went home and one day I went in the house and I told my mom that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Why I knew what that was in second grade, <laughs> I have no idea. Although looking back, we had family, we had family friends that were psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, and she said, okay, well, that sounds great, but you have to go to medical school for that. Again, why I knew what that implied at age eight, I don't know. But I said, well, then I don't want to be a psychiatrist. I want to be a psychologist. This is what I said, apparently, this family lore. So um, fast forward, I always knew that that was what I wanted to, to do was help people in that way um, that were struggling. And so I did go to college. I started out majoring in psychology fairly quickly, switched to social work because I learned some about the field and I learned about um Social work is a very practical degree. So you can be a therapist with a master's in social work, but you can do a lot of other things too. And I liked the sort of pragmatic nature of the degree. So I did my undergrad in social work. I worked with adolescents for about 10 years in various um, kind of social worky group home and ministry settings. Um, and then eventually I wasn't a great student, so I put grad school off for a long time, um, but eventually I knew that in order to do what I really wanted to do, I needed to go back. So I did that when I was 30, um, and now I'm telling you how old I am because that means that I have been, so I graduated from 
my master's in 2005 um, and have done clinical work mostly since then. I took a few years off to be at home with kiddos, but yeah, for the better part of almost, I guess, 18 years, 17 years, do my man. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, that's such a, um, it takes a really giving person, I think, to go into that field. My, my daughter actually says she wants to be a psychologist. That's what she actually oh, her. Her AP exam for psychology last week. And she was so stressed. I think she wanted to like sleep all weekend after it was over with. That's a lot to take on because, you know, I've always thought that that taking you're kind of taking on other people's emotions and their problems and but it's so admirable to be that person that is there to help them through that so that's I mean yes um (laughs) I I mean it it definitely takes you know a certain um determination and personality to stay in this field um to be able to care for people without a lot of returns I mean people get better I don't mean returns in that way but but it's definitely not the kind of work that you get instant gratification for, yeah. you know, it's a lot of, it's a long process. Um, but the secret is that a lot of us who are in this field can't imagine doing anything else. So it's not like it's all completely, you know, selfless and saintly or anything, but yeah, um, <laughs> well, I just, yeah. I love it. it is a huge privilege to be able to walk with people through their lives. And yeah, I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and you knew since you were eight years old, so you were obviously <laughs> right. just to do this. right. I'd have I'd have really to face a lot of ridicule. I think if I ever said I didn't want to do it, not really. <laughs> so I'm not even going to try to pronounce the entire thing, but can you elaborate and tell us a little bit about DBT? DBT, yes, <laughs> dialectical behavior therapy. <laughs> So um, DBT was developed by a hero of a woman. Um, her name is Marshall and Ann, and she just celebrated her 79th birthday on Thursday. Oh. Um, and it's, it's a lengthy story how she got into this field. But essentially, once the therapy was well established and she was beyond the point of anybody ever questioning her legitimacy as a um, developer of a, of a treatment, her public her story went public in 2011. Um, I actually have her book and show it to you. Um, it came out that when she was in high school, she was um, hospitalized for mental health issues of her own. So this is her book, Building a Life Worth Living by Marshall Linehan. Okay. Um, she was hospitalized at 18 and she spent two years inpatient. And she was considered one of the most difficult. I mean, it's in her charts that she was the most difficult patient they've ever worked with because they tried everything and nothing helped. Um, essentially, what she was dealing with were um, trigger warning, pervasive patterns of suicidal thoughts and self harm. Oh wow! Um, and it was not suicide and self harm for the sake of suicide and self harm as much as it was her her internal landscape was so overwhelming that. She just, anything she could imagine to try to escape feeling as bad as she did was kind of became a pattern of behaviors. So um, without going into great detail about that, it is, she does talk explicitly about it in the book. She was diagnosed as schizophrenic. She was diagnosed with all these different things because at the time, this was 1960, um, there was just not a lot of understanding about what we now understand she was dealing with, which is um, something called borderline personality disorder. So people have probably heard that term because it's been in the news a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, I will not 
diagnose somebody I've never met. I won't give my opinion on whether the diagnosis is accurate, but I will say that the, the way that borderline um, personality disorder was discussed in the trial is something that we in the professional community are trying to get away from, um, which is describing it as in a pejorative sort of blaming way um, and describing it as somebody's core character. So personality disorders in general, but I can speak most to borderline, um, is a pattern of behaviors that develop for a reason. So if you understand the background of how somebody got to where they are, their behaviors make sense. That doesn't excuse them if they're doing things that are problematic. But, but if you understand the background and how somebody got to the place that they are at, their behaviors actually make sense. Um, and so from a DBT perspective, coming back to your question, from a DBT perspective, um, you know, borderline personality disorder is what it was designed to treat initially. And so, you know, we may talk about the diagnosis and the, the list of criteria in the DSM in the very beginning when somebody comes in, because usually they were told they have that label and that's why they were referred to DBT. But after that, from the beginning, we just talk about what are the behaviors, what are the what are the patterns, what are the habits that are getting in your way in your life, what are the things that are keeping you from living the way that you want to live, and that's what we address. So DBT is unique in that sense, um, that it's just not pejorative. It's not about saying like you're flawed as a human being. It's about saying you are valuable as a human being, and we just need to figure out how to teach you some more effective ways to cope with your life. Um, so it is. Uh, variation on cognitive behavioral therapy, which a lot of people have heard of that Aaron Beck um, developed in the 60s and 70s. Um, it just has some additional features because people with borderline personality disorder and the other disorders that we treat um, very often have tried everything. Um, they've tried a whole lot of different types of therapy and they just haven't been able to get the, the kind of support that they need. And so this therapy is designed to um, you do individual therapy, but you also do group skills. And so the group skills are all about figuring out the, the deficit areas that people are struggling with, like interpersonal skills, um, skills in regulating their emotions, skills in coping with um, distress, which is when they're really, really overwhelmed without kind of doing drastic things that may get worse, um, and then mindfulness. So those are the four areas of skills that we cope with or that we cover in DBT. Like I'm kind of getting a little off track, but um, but essentially the idea is that in order for somebody to change their patterns, they need two things, not one at a time or one or the other. Everybody needs both. They need acceptance or validation that the way you've coped makes sense. You know, it's not again, it's not approval. It's just saying like it makes sense that you've coped the way you have, and I give you some credit because you're still here, right? You obviously did something right, yeah. and looking ahead at the kind of life that you want to live. Um, it's not working. So we need to change something. You know, we need to enhance your skills. We need to give you some new options for how to cope. So with this balance of acceptance and change, whereas previously they've been told like, you're crazy, you're manipulative, what's wrong with you? Why are you overreacting? You know, they've been told that they are the problem. So we're saying you're not the problem, but something still needs to change for you to get the life that you want. So I don't know if that sort of kind of answers your question. I could talk about it for days, but I don't want to totally overwhelm you. So, so, um, so is it primarily, is DBT primarily for, um, what, what did we call it again? Borderline, borderline personality, personality disorder. disorder. It was developed for borderline personality disorder, not because that was Marshall and Ann's initial um, intent, but because she wanted to treat the, the behavioral patterns 
in order to get funding from the national government, you have to have a label that goes with it. And so they looked at the data of the people they were helping, and that was the most common disorder. Um, but again, you know, her her first funding was in 1981 or 82, um, and her first big chunk of major research was published in the early 90s. And since then, DBT has more like randomized controlled trials than almost any therapy out there. And so it's proven to work for a lot of different things. And, depression, mood disorders, bipolar, anxiety, PTSD, like we treat a lot of different things. But we still talk about borderline because in order to understand how the treatment works, you have to understand kind of what the background was and what it was designed to address. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had actually never heard of it before until recently. Okay. So until the signed up Amber Heard trial, right? Yes, that was yes. so very much on the world stage. Yes, I know that that's all I've seen lately. Has she officially been diagnosed with uh, person borderline personality disorder or is it? I just- mean, that particular psychologist apparently did all the diagnostics and gave her that diagnosis. Okay. Um, and, but it sounds to me, I have not, I will confess that I've not totally followed the trial. I wasn't following it at all until a very distraught client texted me and said, do you hear this expert trial? She's saying horrible things about people with this disorder. And it was ex- incredibly distressing for people who are working hard to live their lives in a healthy way. And then all of a sudden, you know, this stuff is coming out in the news about how they're, they're all violent and they're all angry. And it's just, you know. Can't group everybody together. You can't make those kind of generalizations. Like one person might deal with violence and anger, and another person might deal with something totally yeah, different. Everybody so, has uh, everybody has different ways of dealing with things yeah. and dealing with yeah. trauma or dealing with you know whatever's going on. So yeah, yeah. really group them all. So together. apparently, that psychologist diagnosed her with that, and the psychologist for her case, I guess, said she had PTSD. But the the first psychologist said she didn't have PTSD. But the thing is, the diagnostic categories are they're not tidy little boxes. They're like impressions and it's more kind of on a continuum and it's sort of a moving target to a certain extent. So, you know, even if she spent four hours with her or whatever it was, that's, that's not really long enough to understand some of these life patterns from my point of view. Well, like you said, it takes a long time of working with somebody to fully understand them and to help them. It's not like something that you just go in and boom, they're better. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say there's a lot of pain on both sides in that trial. And I feel for both people involved. I yeah. mean, they both had a hard time with it. So it's, yeah, you can tell. Pretty sad. Yeah. So um, let me ask you this, Val. First of all, you have, you just recently written a book. Yes. About, and, guess what? DDT. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that is just, that is so exciting. Tell us a little Thank bit you. about the book. So here it is. Shameless plug. It's called the 12-week DBT workbook. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, there's sort of four categories of skills that we teach. Um, And it's not easy to access DBT. There's just only so many trained DBT therapists who do the full model, which is what what I do and what my teammates do. Um, But there have been studies done that have shown that if you have to pick and choose, like if you don't have access to the whole thing and you could only access one part of it, Um, that the skills are effective on their own. Not as effective as the full therapy, but that people can benefit just from learning the skills. The reality is that these skills are life skills. You know, I mean, everybody needs, could benefit from mindfulness. Everybody can benefit from being a little better at navigating interpersonal situations. Everybody can benefit from being able to cope with their emotions without like making destructive choices. So, so, 
um, the skills, this book is specifically the skills of DBT. There's a whole lot more to DBT than the skills, but, but it goes in 12 weeks through the four modules. I think the first couple chapters give some of the background of the theory of DBT and the history of DBT and what it's designed to treat. Um, talking about dialectics, which is a philosophy term that means holding opposites in tension. So that acceptance and change at the same time it would be an example of that. Um, and then there's three weeks each in each of the skills modules. Um, it is, like I said, it's not a replacement for DBT, but the skills can be really beneficial for people on their own. So that's what the book is. That's so awesome. Congratulations on that. It just came out this week, right? Yep, me 10. So awesome. So we're going to make sure we put a link um, to your book in the show notes so that people can go check that out. And I can't wait, wait to read it myself. Like you said, I, I mean, I, it, the skills that it teaches, I could see where anybody could benefit from that. So yes. yeah, I love what you said earlier about acceptance and then change that can be applied in so many areas, I think, yes. of life in general, Absolutely. just to accept mm -hmm. what's happening with you mentally, emotionally and then taking the steps to change things. Absolutely. You just hit it on a huge point, actually, that this idea that acceptance has to happen before change does, right? Yeah. Like until you accept what you're, what problem you're dealing with, you know, even like a physics problem until you say like, okay, well, I need to figure out how these two things fit together. Until you accept that you have this challenge, you can't figure out what to do to change it. Um, people tend to push back at the idea of acceptance because they think you're telling them they need to be like at peace with their troubles or like approve of them. And it's not about that at all. It's just saying, this is what it is. This is where we are. This is what we have to contend with. Um, I always say, I always like to say that um, I feel like when you do accept something and admit that you have a problem or that something's going on with you, you kind of take a little bit of your power back and take a little bit of the power absolutely. away from that because, absolutely. you know, you take that power back to yourself and say, okay, I have this, but we're going to work through this yeah. and I'm going to fix whatever it is that's going on. So. Yeah, because you can go into a place of being defensive and, and like, no, this is not happening. Denial, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that that makes you feel powerless so I agree yeah. with that when just identifying and accepting something really gives you back the power you know to actually change it and make changes so for sure we sometimes say that pain plus acceptance equals pain pain plus non-acceptance equals pain and suffering it's like you add more suffering to yeah. it when yeah. you like are you know digging in your heels and pushing back against it so yeah, yeah. So, let me ask you this um what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions are that people may have about what you do and about the type mm -hmm. of therapy? And I just, I think, you know, mental health, even though we're speaking about it a lot more openly now than we did just even years ago, I still think there's so much room just like this DBT. I'd never heard of this. And I like to study a lot about mental health and things like that. And I had never heard of it. So I think it's important to keep that. And I think May isn't May Mental Health Awareness Month. Yes. So and Borderline Personality Disorder Awareness Month also. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I just think it's so important to keep that out there and keep people talking about it because it keeps the door open for somebody who might be struggling and having a hard time. You know, yes. when we talk about it and answer questions and things like that, it kind of leaves the door open so people don't feel alone and they feel like they could reach out more. But I think there are probably Absolutely. still, you know, a lot of misconceptions and, and uh, sure. you know, so yes. yeah. I'd be interested to know, like, what you've dealt with with that and what do you think? 
Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there's, I could go a lot of different directions with that. <laughs> um, it There's absolutely stigma, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, there's been a lot of discussions in like listservs and Facebook groups of therapists since that expert testimony. And it's not to insult the expert witness. It's just, if it would have been nice if they had actually, if they were going to push for that diagnosis to be represented, if they had actually talked to an expert in treating that diagnosis, yeah. you know, it would have been nice because they would have given a, a less pejorative, less blaming thing. So the stigma is very real, um, even in the professional community, because even, you know, when Dr. Linehan was developing this treatment, what she was coming up against, besides being a woman in the academic world in a science in the 70s, which was hard enough, yeah. um, you know, one of the things she was coming up against was that the professional community said, oh, those people, they're untreatable. She was like, no, they're not untreatable. We're just not providing the right treatments. Yeah. And of course, they didn't know what she knew, which was she was one of those people that had recovered from, because borderline personality disorder is not a permanent, it doesn't have to be a permanent diagnosis. You can learn new skills and no longer meet criteria. That's something a lot of people don't know. Um, yeah, so the stigma, even within the professional community, you know, people, somebody will comment about BPD and you'll have professionals like, oh my gosh, those people, they're just, I'll never, I won't deal with them. And it's like, Oh, wow. How can you blame people for the stuff that they're coming to you for help for? This is what you're supposed to be here for. So that's, that can be really frustrating. I mean, access to care, we just, it's so limited. People just can't, you know, especially it's even worse now because every therapist I know since COVID has a waiting list. Um, But we don't have, I mean, our mental health, health care system is, it's just limited and it's really hard for people to get the help that they need. Um, if they're even willing to acknowledge that they need help, which, you know, like you said, it's gotten better, but there's still a lot of stigma around it. Um, yeah, I think sometimes just saying that you're going to therapy, sometimes people don't want to say that there's the stigma with that of like, oh, there must be something wrong with you if you're in therapy. And I genuinely believe therapy is for everyone. Like, I think it's such a great thing to be able to express to someone what you're going through and have them offer you professional help. And I think it's something that we all need on one level or another. Um, what is something that you've learned in your field that you really want everybody to know about uh, what you do or mental health? I think we're, so when I was growing up and even when I was first starting to start study psychology and this is the eighties and nineties, it's not that long ago. You know, there was still this like, mindset this this holdover from the enlightenment period that our minds are separate from our bodies you know and that like mental health is different than physical health Mm -hmm. um it's not (laughs) like what's fascinating to me is that I won't totally geek out here but just a little bit your nervous system system has all these fibers that run back and forth between the brain and the body And we tend to think that the brain is calling the shots and telling the body everything. Um, But in your limbic system, um, there 20% of the fibers in this massive network of nerves go from the brain to the body and 80% of the fibers go the other way. So you tell me what's really calling the shots. You tell me that mental health and physical health are separate. 
they're not, they're totally together. So I think, you know, if we could really wrap our heads around that, if we could really understand the way that everything is integrated, you know, mind, body, soul is all integrated together, um, it would help take the stigma out of it. Because much of, you know, mental health stuff, many mental health conditions really are brain, brain chemistry. You know, so why is somebody's brain chemistry needing help in the form of a medicine different than somebody who's diabetic needing help in the form of medicine. It's not really any different. Um, I think the other thing is we are like our cultural understanding and I mean our whole sort of Western civilization understanding of trauma, we're reading on about a second grade level. Like we just have a lot to learn. And if we really understood how trauma affected people, and especially how early childhood trauma affected people. Um, and we provided the education and the care that people need to cope with that. I think our mental health picture would be totally different. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a therapist at all. And obviously I'm not educated in your field, but I agree with you because I know just from personal experience with myself and people close to me, um, you know, childhood trauma it affects people. And a lot of times they don't even realize it until much later in life, then they'll, it will finally start, you know, coming to them, you know, things that they went through as a child. And, you know, sometimes it can be devastating to somebody when they get older and they've never dealt with that. So I think it's, yeah. you know, so important to, to try to, um, like Beth said, I think everybody should Everybody should go I, to I have, <laughs> I have done during COVID and everything. I did online therapy. I've sat in a room with a therapist and I, you know, it's something that early on, I think maybe I was a little like, oh, you know, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm in therapy. I'm, I've totally evolved since then. And I'm just like, therapy, you should just go, you should just go to a therapist, you know, do it online, do whatever. Because like Chrissy was saying with childhood trauma and things like that, it's easy when you become an adult to discount that and say, oh, I was, I was a little kid, you know, I'm, I'm, I've grown past that. And I think that that's something just to, again, you said acceptance, just to accept that, hey, maybe there were some things that happened that are affecting me now. And I mean, I said earlier, I'm a huge believer in therapy. Obviously, we're not professionals like you, but I, I love what you're saying and just, um, giving the education, like you said, if people were just more aware of what causes certain things, I'm, I'm very interested in that. Um, can't re- wait to read your book and learn more about everything because I just think it's something that everyone should do really. Yeah. So we're just going to keep talking. Yeah. I mean, I say, I say, and I learned from some of my professors that, you know, therapists should all know what it feels like to sit on the other side of the desk or the couch or whatever you want to call it yeah gotta know what it feels like to be so most you know many therapists are in therapy on and off throughout their lives just because it's yeah we don't just give it we need it ourselves we need that kind of support so so on that note let me ask you this this is a little bit more on a personal level level but um what how do you practice self-care for yourself like what's your favorite way to to kind of take care of yourself Yeah. Well, so there's like the ideal ways that I would take care of myself if, you know, there were no limitations on time and money and, (laughs) um, you know, I I love to travel and I love to, you know, like go be in nature in the mountains or at the beach or whatever. And we try to do that some. Um, 
But the older I've gotten, so I mean, yoga and doing trapeze and things like that have been an important part of the mix for me over the years and hopefully will again. Um, but I, I was thinking about this because you sent me that this question and it's always a tough one for me. I saw a meme sometime over the last year and it really has resonated with me that true self-care is building a life that you don't have to escape from. Right. So that yeah. is kind of the trajectory of where I'm trying to go with self-care is trying to like make choices professionally and personally too. But, you know, I have young kids and you just don't have a lot. I mean, they're just, they're in a busy time in life and we love it, but it's a lot, you know, but that's just, I'm not going to not like not let them do activities just because I need self-care. So, (laughs) um, so, but professionally I can shift things. I can figure out how to, you know, make sure that my schedule is sustainable or that if I'm really super busy, that it's only for a short period of time. So those kind of bigger picture things are a big part of self-care for me. Um, and then being totally honest, I, because I don't work full-time, I have a couple of days that I'm not at work while the kids are at school and I sit in silence a lot. I mean, I don't just like sit in <laughs> silence, but, but sometimes I do Yeah, just having time where there is no demand there's no noise. I mean, I'm a musician who doesn't listen to music, barely, just because sometimes I just need the quiet more than anything else. Because when I'm at work, whether I'm teaching, less so with writing, but with teaching and doing therapy, you're on, you're completely on, there's no downtime. Um, so yeah, I, I do a lot of sitting in silence, whether I'm knitting or I'm reading or I'm listening to an audiobook or I'm, you know, cleaning something around the house or whatever it is, but just quiet. Where yeah. There's no well, sometimes it's really hard to quiet your mind too. Like you said, you're always going, going, going and busy. Your mind's going here and there and everywhere. And sometimes just silence and trying to just quiet your mind can be really, really important. So I feel you on that. Yeah, it can be a gift. Like uh, Mother's Day just passed and my husband was asking me what I wanted. And I was referred to it as a gift because that's what I wanted. When you said that, I said, I just really want a little peace and quiet and a little me time, <laughs> you know? So I spent the first part of the yes. day with my son. And then I was like, I just want to kind of have a little bit of just quiet. Like you said, whether I'm, you know, just doing something I want to do, but just that, that silence sometimes is a, is a huge gift yes. to yourself. Yeah. And that's something I've gotten from my husband, actually. He's, I, I'm, I'm in the middle between introvert and extrovert, but I'm definitely have always leaned a little more extroverted because I'm energized by people. But my husband is, you know, you look up introvert in the dictionary and his picture is there. It's very introverted. <laughs> but I really learned a lot from him over the 18 years that we've been married, just about the value of like rest and quiet. And even if it's just little chunks of time here and there. Um, so he's definitely supportive in that respect. And I'm grateful. So you kind of just touched on this, but I was going to ask you about like work-life balance. How do you balance that? It You kind of just touched on that and it sounds like you have a pretty good, um, you have it laid out pretty well where you get a little time, you know, to yourself, but you still have obviously a busy career. So do you have any advice on that? Like balancing work and life? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think this is a question I've been asking myself because um, not to go into great detail about it, but but I have an autoimmune disorder, which means my level of energy is limited. Yeah. Um, like I just only have so much juice and then I have to stop. I, I don't really have a choice. Um, and so those built-in days where I don't have anything you know, on the docket are critical for me to be able to 
like keep going. Um, but all of these really cool opportunities professionally have dropped in my lap this last year, like the book and, and like teaching at the university and, and there are things I've always wanted to do. And so of course I'm going to take the opportunity, but that's more stuff. And so I have been finding that it is harder to have the energy for my kids, but that's not okay. Not because somebody's telling me it's not okay, but because they're the priority. Yeah. Um, and so I still haven't figured out the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, one thing I do though is that that in the summertime when they're home from school, like I stop taking new clients around March every spring, um, because you know there's just a natural ebb and flow. People come and they go, and and so some people are terminating or ending therapy right now, and so my schedule will be a little more lean in the summer because I just need the time to just be here with them, um, and we spend every morning at the pool, and we, you know do a family vacation in July and summer is really short and their childhood is really short. And yeah. so just trying to make sure that when I am with them, I'm really with them, even though, you know, there's mom guilt. I, I feel like I should be with them more, but. Well, and and that's, that's so relatable what you said, because um, my five-year-old son, I've gone through periods of my life where I've told my husband, I feel like he's getting, the leftover version of me. So like I've tried more often to, to, while I still have the energy to stop and do those things with him and let him get the best version of me instead of the leftover version that after everyone else has kind of, you know, I've given to everyone else throughout the day. And so I think that's so relatable because as parents, like you said, it's, you know, it's, it's hard, it's a hard job. And it's hard to balance that sometimes. So just those little windows to give them time, you know, is so important. Yeah. I recently just changed up my work schedule for the same, one of the same reasons, because it's easy to get stressed out with work and things like that. And then like I told Beth, I said, I feel like I'm, I'm coming home. Like she said, the leftover version, like I'm not giving my best version to my family. And that's really my priority and I want them to have the best, you know, of course I'm like a, I, I struggle with perfectionism. So I want to be the best at everything, <laughs> but I'm getting better with this, but you know, family's my first priority. So I've shifted a few things around in my life too, to, uh, you know, to try to give them a better version of myself. So Christy, I feel like you and I could go sit with Valerie and she could help us a lot. <laughs> You just Starbucks. <laughs> so before we let you off here, um, I wanted to ask you what sort of advice you could give to somebody who is going through a difficult time in their life. Maybe, um, maybe they've never had therapy or maybe they don't even really know what's going on with them, but they're just, you know, going through a really hard season. Um, what, what advice would you give them to sort of help them? Um, so one thing is something that I learned from a longtime client of mine who was just awesome and made a remarkable progress. Um, but one of the things that they identified that was different from them from the beginning of therapy till you know mid-range and then at the end of therapy was that just the fact that they had developed language for talking about their emotions. I mean, even just as like you know, not all anger is rage, right? Like there could be irritation or there could be frustration or there's there's like all these sub emotions. So 
just the process of learning more language for identifying what they were feeling made the emotions come down significantly. So that's one thing I would say, like, if you don't, if you've never spent time talking about your internal life, there's no reason you should know how, right? Like, it's just, it's a skill you don't have, but there's no shame in that. It's something you can learn no matter where you are in your life. So that's one of the reasons that I think therapy can be helpful, though you can get similar things from self-help books that, that help you to develop you know, more of an internal sense of what's going on with you. Um, yeah, we're, we're just not educated. I mean, this is changing to a certain extent in schools, but we're not really educated on how to take care of ourselves emotionally. And so there's no shame in not having those skills. Um, and there are lots of ways to get those skills. But other than that, I think like Beth said, you know, just when I first started doing therapy, and this is way before I had like specific expertise or training in a particular kind of therapy, I was just doing general talk therapy. I just realized so many of the people that I was talking to had never had anybody who just sat and listened to them without an agenda. Um, I don't think everybody needs therapy. I think everybody could get something from therapy, but I don't think everybody needs it. But if you are in a place where you just don't have somebody in your life um, that can be that kind of sounding word for you. First of all, there's no shame in not having those kind of relationships because there's all kinds of reasons that land us in a place where we don't have those kind of supports. Um, you know, moving a thousand miles away from your family or having your parents pass away or whatever. There's all kinds of, and much worse things that can happen. Um, so there's no shame in not having the support and needing to get it professionally. And there's no shame in looking for it professionally. But the last thing I'll say is, you know, we've all heard the phrase, it's okay to not be okay. The world has just lived through a two and a half, I mean, we're not even out of it yet. We've just lived through a two and a half year trauma. I mean, it has all the makings of a traumatic experience. So even if you particularly haven't experienced it as a totally overwhelming thing, the reality is we've all been trapped in something that we can't get out of, which is the essence of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, don't expect yourself to just like be fine like nothing happened. So if you find that you're coping with things differently or you're feeling differently than you have in the past or you get overwhelmed more easily or you just, as the world starts to pick up its pace again, it feels like too much. It's okay to like stop and take stock and um, allow yourself to adjust your expectations. Yeah. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, before, before, before we end this, tell us again the name of your book. And I, again, like I said, we are going to put the link for your book, anybody, and I'd tell, I, I'd, like I said, I haven't personally read this, the book yet, but I'm excited to get it and read it. And we'll put a link in the show notes so people can click it and go straight to buy this book and check it out. That's great. So it is the 12 week DBT workbook, but you could also just search my name because I only have one book. <laughs> <laughs> so if you search my name, Valerie McBee or Valerie Dunn McBee, it'll pop up. Um, and it is on the big, you know, ginormous monster retailer that we all have a conflicted relationship with. Um, but it's on all the other, you know, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble sites. And hopefully it'll be showing up in, in stores also soon. I hope to walk into Barnes and Noble and see it sitting there. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it can, any, any of those sites, um, you can find it. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. And um, it's been very eye-opening for me mm -hmm. and I've enjoyed it so much. Like Beth said, we need to meet outside of this and go have a coffee and talk to them. I know. I know. <laughs> Sounds it's very, very educational. Yes. I want to know more. So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Val. Thank you.
Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'll have a great day. Thank, Thank you. You too.